All right, good morning, Lake Merced, and to all who may be joining us uh, later in the day or later tonight or tomorrow or next week or whatever it might be, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in week five of our year-long series that we're calling Read Scripture in 2021. It's a series that's designed to help us read through the entire Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation over the course of this year. And so each Sunday's sermon, as you tune in, is going to be a reflection on everything that you've read uh, during the course of that week. And so through week five, we've read all of the book of Genesis. And now this week, we finished the book of Exodus and we began the book of Leviticus. And for all you Leviticus lovers out there, I know how many there are. Don't worry, we will have next week to be able to touch on that text. Today, we're going to be focusing on the book of Exodus. Uh, And so Exodus, you, you think about that book. Think about all the things that we read, all the things that we enjoyed from the first half of that book, whether that be the birth of Moses or the the account of the burning bush or the series of plagues or the introduction of the Passover, something that Thomas was just speaking about in communion, and even the eventual flight from Egypt through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and now we're in the wilderness right now. All of that, all of that story serves as a prelude of sorts for what is going to come in today's text. And so in last week's message, we learned, or we were reminded of something very, very important, that God will never, I repeat, God will never fail to rescue those who know him. He never will. All of those moments that we read about, they reinforce that core truth or reality. And so whatever we're facing, whatever we've gone through, God is a God who rescues those who know him. I want you to understand that, church. I want you to know that. Egypt didn't know him. Pharaoh didn't know him. But Moses knew him. And through Moses, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and so many more. God rescued his people who knew him. And so as we get started this morning, I'd like to invite you, if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 19. And as you do, we will go to God in a word of prayer. And wherever you are, I just invite you, change your posture before God. If you're standing, sit. If you're sitting, kneel. Like, do something to get really, really serious about being in God's presence right now. I invite you. Let's pray. Most righteous and heavenly Father, what a a joy and, and an honor it is to be given this opportunity week in and week out to spend time in your word to study it, to let it penetrate my heart, and then to come and share everything that you've been showing me. Lord, I just pray that your word would come alive in our hearts, in our eyes, in our minds today. I pray the same prayer every week, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear your truth. And Father, may your Holy Spirit speak through me today. Father, may you get all the glory. Lord, you you do provide all the power. And I want to give glory to you. I recognize that there are people who are watching right now who are fatigued at everything that we're dealing with with COVID. They're tired of being in their houses. They're tired of worrying about a vaccine. People are tired. And so, Father, right now, I pray that you would see them. I pray that you would comfort them. You are our comforter. And that you would would instill in them a sense of joy and trust in who you are that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit and that they would love 
out of the overflow of your spirit in their life. Father, I pray this. I pray over this message right now. Would you use it for your glory? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when I was younger, I, uh, I grew up largely in apartment complexes. Uh, I lived in one at my mom's house. I lived in one at my dad's house. And I went back and forth between these two apartment complexes. And in either case, did we have a lot of money uh, to do a lot of extra stuff. But if there's one thing that apartment complexes have a lot of or provide, it's a swimming pool. Every apartment complex I ever lived in had a swimming pool. And so I spent a lot of time in apartment complex swimming pools as a kid. And the cool part is that it's not like having a pool in your backyard where you like, you're the only one who uses it and you might go out there and use it like five times over the course of a year. No, there, there was always other people at the apartment complex pool, other kids at the pool, kids who were also eager for somebody to play with. And so we did all these things together, but one of the games that I would often find myself playing with all these other kids in the, in the complex is one of my personal favorites. You've probably played it, Marco Polo, right? One person would close their eyes and yell, Marco, and you'd wait to hear for everybody else in the pool to yell, Polo, and then you would pick one voice and you would lunge for that person. You'd swim, you'd do whatever it took to try to get them and tag them. Meanwhile, all the other people who just yelled Polo are doing their best like Matrix impression, trying to avoid getting tagged. And it was awesome. It was the best. I loved Marco Polo as a kid. Now I recognize not everybody had a pool growing up. So maybe you played something similar. Maybe you played a game like hot or cold. You, you probably remember this game, right? Somebody might be blindfolded or eyes closed or whatever it might be. And they're given a goal. They have to like get somewhere or they have to touch something or they have to do something. And everybody else is going to stand around them and kind of say like cold, colder, like warm, warm, hot, hot, hot. And you kind of know what to do based on the, the temperature that, that everyone's telling you that you are. And it was a fun way to kind of lead blind people. Blind people who had no earthly idea where they were going. And so they relied on guidance from all the voices around them. They relied on instruction to get there. And so often when we played this game, the object was simple, right? Like, I need to get from one side of the backyard to the other side of the backyard. Or I need to get this person to look under the right couch cushion to find that toy or something that I hid. And all of that sounds pretty fun, right? It's, it's not dangerous. Uh, it's, not, it's not far to get from one point of the yard to the other. And there aren't a lot of obstacles, right? It's, it's just pretty easy. Hot, hot, hot. Okay, you got there. Good job. But... I want you to imagine something for just a moment. I want you to close your eyes if it helps you to imagine this. I want you to picture yourself standing on one side or one rim of the Grand Canyon, and in your hand is a radio or a walkie-talkie, and in the other hand are a pair of binoculars. And as you look across the canyon through your binoculars, you see way on the other rim your very best friend, maybe your spouse, your husband, your wife, somebody, and they are blindfolded, and they're holding the other radio, the other walkie-talkie, and you want to be together naturally, and you can be together, but there are, there are two limits to this involvement. Number one, they can't take their blindfold off because for whatever reason, you're the only one who knows how to, and I think this exercise is even more fun if you kind of imagine VR like goggles, but blindfolds are simpler, so let's go with blindfolds. And number two, the only way that they will be safe is to get to your side of the canyon. And so you're going to need to guide them to you. You can't go to them. 
And so if you can picture that scene, then you can picture part of a reality facing the people of Israel as they're out in the wilderness after, after rescuing uh, or after escaping Egypt. Because now that they're out there, they're just out in the wilderness, they don't really know what to do next. They have no idea. They don't know where to go. They don't know when to go. They don't even know how to go. They're just out there. All they know is Moses. That's all they know. And, and Moses seems to know God. And so as chapter 19 begins, the, the entire nation of people is camped beside a mountain named Sinai. And there at Sinai, Moses begins to do something that he's going to do many times over the next 20 chapters. He's going to climb that mountain. And as he does, God calls to Moses from the mountain. And here's what he says. He says, Moses, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That kingdom of priests language, you heard Thomas mention that in communion just a few moments ago as well. But in these words, God does uh, three important things. Number one, he reminds them of his power, the power that he used to rescue them. And he's basically saying, like, you've seen it for yourselves now. You see how powerful I really am. Number two, he calls for their obedience. This is what he wants. I want your obedience, and I want you to keep my covenant. And number three, he makes it conditional. He uses the word if. And, and I think this is the first time, for my recollection, that God makes a, a covenant that is conditional since the beginning of Scripture. And so all the other times that God told his people what he was going to do, it was a statement of fact. This is what I will do. Like, full stop, period. But this time his tone changes a little bit. He says, if you obey, if you keep my covenant, then. And it, and it kind of makes us ask, why? Like, why now? Like, wh why is the, con the covenant conditional now in a way that all these other covenants weren't conditional? And I think I would explain it like this. Uh, remember, what is a covenant? We talked about this like two weeks ago. A covenant is an agreement. It's a promise, but it's unique from something like a, a contract in that it's, it's built entirely on relationship. In covenant, relationship is key. And so like if I go to the bank and I take out a loan, that's an agreement also, but it's an agreement that says you will give me money now and I promise to give you money later plus a little bit extra over a period of time. But covenant is different from that. Covenant is more like a marriage vow. A marriage vow says, I will love you for better or for worse till death do us part. Now, when I say those words to my wife, am I agreeing to something? Well, absolutely. But it's, it's not about a, a loan. It's about relationship. I'm agreeing to a covenantal relationship. And when I think about any significant relationship in my life, and the same would be true for any significant relationship in your life, 
what you'll notice is a similar progression here. Uh, when I started getting to know Tiffany, there, there were virtually no expectations that were placed in our friendship or our relationship except mutual interests. Like, you're attractive, you're fun, like, let's get to know each other a little bit more. And that's fine. Like, for a while, that's fine. But what happens as that kind of relationship matures? Well, there starts to be expectations that are built into that relationship, right? So like one of our early ones that came up when Tiff and I were in high school and we're dating is that she wanted me to go to church with her. Great expectation. And so that, that was the hope. That was the expectation that she had. And if I wasn't willing to do that, what likely would have happened to that relationship that we had? It, it likely wouldn't have continued. It would have dissolved. But after a while, the, the expectations in our relationship weren't just attending church. Whether we realized it or not, Tiff and I both we're in the season of discerning. We're both saying like, okay, if this person is somebody that I want to spend the rest of my life with, then I'm going to continue to, to be yoked together with or connected together with, then these are the expectations that we have for one another. And so all relationships have these. All relationships have expectations that are built into them that even if they don't start with expectations, they do eventually have them. I have friendships, for instance, in my life uh, where because one friend might have started to engage in behavior that, that uh, wasn't consistent with my expectations for them, those friendships ended. In other words, they started doing things I didn't really want to do with them. And so that friendship went away. Well, Exodus chapter 19 kind of reflects the, the evolution of that covenant relationship with God. That for hundreds of years, God just said, I will do this. But now he's raising the stakes a little bit. He said, I've done what I said I would do, and if it's going to continue, here are my expectations. He says, obey me fully and keep my covenant. Those are my expectations. And in verse 8, Moses goes back down the mountain, and he tells the people, and what do they say? You remember from your reading this week? We will do everything the Lord has said. You got it. We will do that. All of this is designed to bring God closer in relationship to his people and then them closer in relationship to him. That's the goal. It always has been. I will be your God and and you will be my people. That's always what God has been asking for. And what you'll notice is how that relationship changes. Throughout the entirety of of the second half of the book of Exodus, that relationship changes. That as the people are camped up on the mountain, uh, Moses goes not just one time, not just two times, but he goes up there five times, five round trips that I can count from, uh, from camp. I said on the mountain, but they're beside the mountain. Five round trips from camp to mountaintop and back down to camp again, where, where Moses is speaking to God and to the people. He's the go-between. And each time, that relationship between God and people changes. It evolves and it gets a little bit closer, a little closer, a little more intimate, a little closer each and every time. There's progression there. First, God called to Moses from the mountain. That's the first thing that we're told. But watch this. As Moses goes back up to the mountain to meet with God, what does God say this time? Look at verse 9 in your Bibles. He says, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. In other words, now God doesn't speak to Moses from a distance. 
from the mountain, what does he do? He comes to Moses to speak with Moses. And so God sends Moses back down the mountain with expectations. He says, Moses, I want you to go down there. I want you to consecrate the people. Another word that Thomas used in his communion devotional today. He says, I want you to tell them to stay away from the mountain and consecrate them. Like, have them, make sure they don't even touch the mountain. In other words, have them get clean. That's what consecrate's about. Have them get clean. Have them get pure. Have them get ready for me to come closer. Remember, this is a holy God. And to be near him, to be a kingdom of priests, requires holiness and it requires purity. This relationship has expectations. And so in verse 16, after three days of people being consecrated, being purified, God does what he says he would do. And he comes a little bit closer. It says in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. You can picture this. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And so what happens now? Well, verse 20 says that God came to the top of the mountain. Now he's on the top of the mountain, and he calls Moses from camp up to the top of the mountain to meet with him where he is. And this time, while God is there, and he's communing with Moses, he sends Moses back down again. This is verse 24. And he says, now I want you to go down, and I want you to bring Aaron up with you. Everyone else stays back, but bring Aaron up with you. What's God doing? He's inviting one more person a little bit closer. And so while Moses is back at camp, God begins to speak from the mountain, and he begins to tell all the people, and he begins to set these expectations for his relationship to all the people. Now, famously, we've come to know this as the Ten Commandments. If you read Hebrew, uh, the, the, the word that's actually used here is the ten words. And if you're an academic, they call it the Decalogue, which just means ten words. But it's all the same thing. And it's God kind of going like, okay, people, like who am I? Do you remember who I am? I am who I am. And this is how he begins his comment to them. Before the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Like he's saying, like, this is who is speaking to you now. That God that parted the seas and did all that stuff, I am speaking to you now. And here are my expectations. Remember, you said you would do everything that I asked of you. So here's what I'm asking if our relationship is going to take the next step. Number one, you can't have other gods. It's just me. Same thing happens in my, my marriage, right? You can't have other women or other men. It's just me. He says you can't have other gods. It's just me. Number two, you can't bow down and, and worship idols or, or created things. I am the uncreated one. You should be worshiping nothing 
that is created. Nothing. Number three, you can't misuse my name. Number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it pure. Keep it holy. Keep it undefiled. Don't misuse your day of rest. That was a gift from me to you. That was a gift. Use it wisely. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal from one another. Don't give false witness or lie about another person. And don't covet what they have. Don't covet what another person has. You know, so much has been made of these 10 words that we can often miss the heart and the spirit behind them. Because both of these 10 words and much of what is about to come throughout the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy form what we've come to know as law. This is the law. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are called throughout the rest of the Bible as the law or the books of the law or the books of Moses. If you hear those terms, that's what we're talking about. And so as people, we hear law because of everything kind of goes on in our land around us, and we kind of get scared and uncomfortable. We don't really love law all the time. But we have to ask, like, what is the purpose of the law? Why does God give this law to his people? Is it just because God wants to stand on his mountaintop and make sure that we don't have any fun? Like, that's kind of how we treat the law from time to time, isn't it? But interestingly, the New Testament spells out exactly what the purpose of God's law really was. And he does this in, in Paul's letter to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Here's what Paul says. He says, The law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Seed here refers to Christ. So until Christ to whom the promise referred had come. It was added because of transgressions. Verse 24 continues. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And I think the, the 1984 version of the NIV actually is, is helpful right here. I really like the wording. The 1984 version says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Now, why was the law there? The law was there to lead us to Christ. But that's law with the benefit of hindsight. That's law where we like go to the back of the math book and get the answer before we work it out on our own. That's not what the people camped here at the base of Mount Sinai would have yet understood. And what God was saying to them, but, but it, it helps us. It helps you and it helps me understand exactly what God was doing thousands of years ago, that this law was pointing ahead to the, to the person of Christ. And what it demonstrates to us, what it teaches us, is how blind and how clueless we as people sometimes really are. That we don't know where we are. We don't know where we're going. We don't know when we're going. And we don't know how to get there unless something or someone is there to help us. And so the purpose of the law isn't altogether different than, than if you were a blindfolded person standing on the wrong side of the Grand Canyon 
with only your very best friend and a handheld radio to guide you and show you where you need to go. If you can imagine that journey, if you can imagine being that blindfolded person who's speaking and who's, who's understanding and listening to what is being said to you, then you can understand what, what this would be like. Because there are times when your friend would talk to you and he'd be speaking to you gently and softly because you're doing just fine. You're, you're navigating this trail well. You aren't in harm's way, but you better bet there will be times as you navigate this, this treacherous trail, this ominous cliff, that in every other danger that awaits you, your friend would be speaking to you and screaming into the radio like, stop, don't take another step, turn around, go the other direction. That's what that journey would look like. And why are they doing that? Why are they telling you don't? Is it because they don't want you to have fun? Absolutely not. It's because they have something so much better for you. And they don't want you to die on your way before you get there. And so churches, as the people of God camped at the base of Sinai, those are the stakes. That's what's on the line as they, as, that awaits them, and they don't even know it yet. And so what I want you to see is that their journey to the promised land, the land of Canaan, or as Muhammad likes to say, Canaan, where God is getting to take them, their journey there isn't just about the journey. That journey is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And so obedience to God's law and keeping the covenant, it may help them get to the promised land, yes, but more than that. And what they don't even yet realize is that it gets you to Jesus. And Jesus gets you through all that peril to where God is, to the only one who can take off that blindfold and help them to see clearly for the first time. I want you to think about the most famous hymn ever written, Amazing Grace, right? What does Amazing Grace say? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas, say it with me, blind, but now I see. And when you get to the Gospels, what do you see Jesus doing time after time after time? He's taking blind people and he's healing them and he's helping them see. God has only ever wanted a relationship with humanity. God only ever wanted to be right there in camp among all the people, living with the people. And if we can't see that, we're blind. But that is what God is going for here. But they weren't ready for that relationship yet. And they were too blind to see it because just in case you thought the people were truly ready for what, what a covenant relationship looked like, all it took was for Moses to go back up that mountain one more time and spend 40 days up there communing with God. And what happened? You know the story well, right? Exodus 32 begins with these words. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And so Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, 
These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Wow. Church law and covenant go hand in hand. They go hand in hand in the same way that relationships have expectations. And so God's law represents the expectations that God has as part of his covenant relationship with his people. And it was God's law that was designed because of and for these very moments right here. God said, here are my expectations, remember? You can't have other gods. It's just me. And number two, you can't bow down and worship idols. You can't worship created things. And what did everybody say? Everything you say, we will do. And in no time at all, what did they do? They did the exact opposite. Does that sound familiar? I got to tell you, it sounds like me. Does Does that sound like you as well? And yet something interesting happened in the chapters following this golden calf moment. First, God was angry, just like we might get angry if someone broke a promise to us. Number two, God was just. He dealt justly with the sin of the people. There were consequences involved. But at the end of it all, something interesting happened. It doesn't make any sense, but Moses went into camp and he built a tent. And it says in verse 9, as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And while God was there, he began to do some some new and strange and interesting things. First, Moses said, I want to see your glory. So God took him and he put him in the cleft of a rock and he covered Moses there with his hand and he went by him. And so Moses could kind of see the backside of God a little bit because God said, nobody can see my face and live. And as he passed in front of Moses, God said something remarkable about himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord, and literally Yahweh, Yahweh. He says his name, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now that's a confusing thing to say and understand, but it reveals some core fundamental aspects about the character and the nature of the person of God, who he really is, what he's all about. What does he say? He says, Moses, I am compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. I'm maintaining love to thousands. He says, I'm forgiving of wickedness and rebellion and sin. And I'm just. He punishes the guilty. And it's what comes next that is perhaps most perplexing of all. Because while Moses is there, he essentially gives Moses blueprints I used, to, I used to draw blueprints when I worked in architecture. He gives Moses blueprints for how to build the right kind of tent. And for the next six chapters of the book of Exodus, that's what the whole nation of people do. They craft the tent. They craft all the things that are supposed to go in it. There's blue yarn and purple yarn and gold and bronze and all kinds of stuff. It's beautiful. And at the end of Exodus 40... As Moses finished all the work and everything was was just so, just the way it was supposed to be, 
the text reveals something remarkable. And I want you to picture this scene. Just close your eyes. Picture this blue and purple and gold and bronze tent. And it's done. And the text says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, and they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Do you see what's happening here? Church, do you see that progression that's taking place? Do you see what has happened between God's relationship and his people or with his people that little by little, step by step, God has been preparing and leading these people into a closer relationship with him? First, what what does God do? He calls to Moses from the top of the mountain. Second, God came to the top and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. Third, God called Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders to the mountain. And then fourth, things begin to change. God comes to a tent in camp and he meets there with Moses. And now God's glory has filled this new tabernacle, this new tent of meeting, and he's camping with his people day and night. Wherever they went, he's right there with them. God's law has always been about bringing us together in relationship with God again. And like blind people, we have no idea how to get there on our own. We have no idea what to do. And so God shows us. We yelled, Marco! And he yelled, Polo! And he showed us. And when we failed, because that's what happened with the golden calf, when we failed, God was just and God was merciful and he forgave us. And after that, what did he do? Did he go, did he go far away? No, he came closer still. And this is just a preview for next week, but I love the way Leviticus begins. It says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. God no longer calls from faraway mountaintops. He's moved closer. He's camping with us now. He is among us now. Church, if there's one thing I hope you take from this portion of Scripture, it's not to memorize the Ten Commandments. It's not to to know exactly how the tabernacle was crafted and what was blue and what was purple and what was gold. It's not even to know how tall Mount Sinai was. Like These are all trivial things that we learn in Bible classes and, and do in Bible bowls. The point of all of this stuff was about relationship. And so here's what I want you to remember from today's message. Write this down if you can. God's expectations for us make possible God's relationship with us. I'm going to say that one more time. God's expectations for us make possible God's relationship with us. Does that make sense? Does that mean that our relationship with God is made possible by our obedience or by the good things that we do. No, not at all, never. What it means is that once upon a time, 
the expectations, the law was about obedience. But once Jesus came, those expectations changed. Were there still expectations? Absolutely, but they changed. And so I think Romans 3 brings us into into clear view. If you look there, Paul's epistle to the Roman church says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, not by what they do. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So what are the expectations of our relationship with God? It's faith. It's faith. Faith in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Faith in his death. Faith in his burial. Faith in his resurrection from the dead. That in Christ Jesus, the law has been fulfilled. And in its place comes faith. God's expectations for us make possible God's relationship with us. And so whoever you are, whether you realize it or not, you are on a perilous journey right now, today. You are on a perilous journey. You are trying to cross a canyon that you cannot cross by yourself, that you cannot cross without help. And so once upon a time, we relied on someone giving us instructions on how to cross. But what happened? Golden calf. We still slipped. We still fell. So what did God do? He sent a rescuer who not only came to help you navigate, but he picked your blind self up in his arms and he walked you, literally carrying you the rest of the way to the safe side of the canyon. The only way that you will not make it to the safe side is if you brush him off and say, I can do this on my own. That's the only way you won't make this. You can't do it on your own. You can try, but you'll die. You cannot do it on your own. But if you'll trust Jesus to pick you up, not only will he deliver you, but he'll bring you into the real and true promised land of God, into perfect and total closeness and relationship with God the Father. And so that is what we invite you to today. If if you are tired of trying to be good enough only to realize that you always fall short. Welcome to the club. We invite you into a community of people who also always fall short, but we are loved by a compassionate, loving, slow-to-anger kind of God. And if that sounds like the kind of relationship with God that you're looking for today, I want to invite you. Would you email me at questions? at lakemercedchurch.com or you can drop a comment in the comment section and let me know that you would love to, to hear a little bit more about Jesus or you'd love to take another step in your relationship with him. We'd love to help you out of your blindness into full sight today. And as we leave, I want to close with this blessing and these words over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless you, my friends. We'll see you next time.